Let's get started by opening up our Bibles tonight to the book of John as we continue to look at the questions or multiple questions in this chapter. We'll concern ourselves this evening primarily with John chapter 6, verses 53 through 55. John 6, 53 through 55. So let's start by just reading through these texts, and we'll read through them a couple of more times this evening. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. We'll look at, in one of our slides this evening, what does it mean to eat the flesh of Christ and to drink His blood? What exactly did Jesus mean in those statements? But before we do that, our question that we're going to be examining first is, does anyone else have or receive eternal life? Now, we have gone through multiple questions and we have seen that whenever a person believes in Christ, they have eternal life. They receive it. And that life is the life that God has given to His people in Jesus Christ. And so we want to ask the question tonight, does anyone else get or receive eternal life. And whenever we're talking about the eternal life that Christ is talking about here, we're talking about eternal life with God as opposed to merely existing for eternity. And in particular, in contrast to existing for eternity in the lake of fire, which is referred to, by the way, in the Bible as the second Death. You'll know that from Revelation chapter 20. And I want you to turn there with me for a moment. Revelation chapter 20, and let's go down in that text to verse 11. Revelation 20, 11. And we'll look at this text as well a couple of times this evening. Revelation 20, 11. Then I saw a great white throne. And him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them, that I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds." And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And as you clearly saw there in verse 14, the lake of fire is referred to 
as the second death. And this second death lasts for eternity. It is the, the consummation, if you will, of the wrath of God on unbelievers. They will experience the second death. From Scripture, we recognize that all people are raised. Some to life and the rest to judgment. This second death is the judgment. Resurrection to judgment. Go with me to the book of John again and turn there to chapter 5 this time. John chapter 5. Move down in the text to verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. You notice a distinction already. When you back up to verse 25, it says, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. That's a spiritual resurrection. That's the new birth. That's those who are dead, being enabled by God to hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know from John 10.26, Jesus says, My sheep, what? They hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. Notice what Jesus said here. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Spiritual resurrection. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. He's talking about those who now are physically dead. The first group were the spiritually dead. Here is the physical dead. He says, they are in the tombs and will hear His voice. And will come forth those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So, there are Two resurrections mentioned there. Two kinds of resurrection. One resurrection to life. The other to judgment. Revelation chapter 20 is the resurrection to judgment. Those verses beginning as we saw a moment ago in verses 11 through 15. Sequentially, that resurrection to judgment 
occurs after the first resurrection. The first resurrection is the resurrection Jesus spoke of here, the resurrection to life. As a matter of fact, go back to Revelation chapter 20 with me for a moment. And in Revelation 20, back up in the text for a little while, or for a, little, a few verses, to verse 4. Revelation 20 and verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. So the first resurrection that is in view here is the resurrection, as Jesus mentioned in John 5, to life. This is the resurrection of believers. It occurs in various stages, but it is nonetheless part of the first resurrection. It's a resurrection to life. The second resurrection, picking up in verse 11, after the thousand years were completed, this is the resurrection of all the ungodly, and it's a resurrection to judgment. My point in bringing that out is simply this. Everyone has eternal life. Everyone will live forever. The question isn't whether or not they will live forever, but whether or not they will live forever with God or without God. And those who live forever without Him live under His wrath for eternity. They do not just perish, as we saw from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 last week. They live without a sense of well-being in any sense. Jesus described that kind of living as living in a place where their worm does not die. The idea there is they are intensely suffering for eternity. It's a just sentence because their sins have been against God who is perfectly holy and eternal. But for God's people, those, as Christ said here in John 6, who eat his flesh and drink his blood, they have everlasting life. They will live forever. They live with life, as Jesus said in John chapter 10, and that abundantly. Go over there to that text with me for a moment, John chapter 10. And look at verse 10. John 10, 10. 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. As a matter of fact, that Greek word translated destroy there is the same Greek word that we looked at Sunday in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, translated perish. And it means not non-existence, but the loss of well-being. The loss of well-being. Right now, every single person alive on this planet in some way or another is a recipient of the goodness of God. They may have trials and they may have troubles, and they do. But they don't know trials and they don't know trouble until they've perished without the Son of God. They have, comparatively speaking now, they may not realize it, and I know the overwhelming feeling and condition of suffering that it seems like whenever something is critically wrong with us, we have no sense of well-being. But comparatively speaking, comparatively speaking, all of the suffering that can be mustered together here is not even close to the suffering that individuals who do not know Christ will experience. Even in the midst of the greatest peril here, comparatively speaking, there is a sense of well-being. But for Christians, take a look at the rest of what Jesus said. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is the abundant life. Everlasting life. Life in a right relationship with God. Life as a recipient of the goodness of God and very specifically, the grace of God in salvation through Jesus Christ. That is the abundant life. Now, I know that there is a lot of quacks running around in evangelicalism, and they believe that you can have your abundant life now, and that means, in their terminology, living your best life now. And those people do not read the Bible. Now, I know that they do, and they quote from it, and they speak about it, but it's one thing to read it, and then there's another thing to read it, to study it, to look at it. And we don't want our best life now. We want and know as Christians our best life is yet to come. Praise the Lord. A life without suffering, a life without pain, a life without sin, a life without agony, a life without sorrow and sadness. What a praise that is. And there is nothing in this life that can compare to it. Praise the Lord. Jesus said it again. The thief only comes or comes only but to steal, to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
Jesus came so that his people could have abundant life. Praise the Lord. What a blessing that is. What a praise that is. Back to our question. That's just kind of preliminary. Does anyone else have or receive eternal life? That is, does anyone else besides those who believe in Christ, who receive Christ, who eat of His flesh and drink of His blood, does anyone else have that life? Well, what did Jesus say? Look at verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. That pretty much answers the question. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, take a look at that little two-word phrase, unless you. And then He goes on. Eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood. And then notice that. You have no life in yourselves. The answer to the question is no. Unless a person eats of his flesh and drinks of his blood, they will not have the life. Period. Look at the next verse with me. Verse 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has... What? Eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Can anyone else have the life outside of Christ? Well, Jesus gave us the answer, and it is no. No. This folds right into other verses we're familiar with. John 14, 6, right? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus said. Acts, look there with me for a moment to chapter 4. Acts 4. Move down in Acts 4 with me to verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name but the name of Christ. No other person has the life in them but Jesus Christ. Paul, as he wrote to the church at Corinth, said that there is no other foundation that can be laid except that which has already been laid, which is Christ Jesus. There's no other foundation. So that means works won't save. Baptism won't save. The church can't save. The Lord's Supper can't save. 
because there's no other name. There's no life in those things. It's just really that simple. As a matter of fact, look in your Bibles with me to 1 John. John addressing the same subject. 1 John, look at verse chapter 5 with me. Move down to verse 11. 1 John 5.11 And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Life's in His Son. Notice as He goes on. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Pretty explicit. If you have the Son, you have the life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the life because the life is in the Son. And again, I want to reiterate, the Son, the life is not in the works. The, son, the life is not in the church. The life is not in um, the Lord's Supper. The life is not in baptism. It's not in anything or anyone but Jesus Christ Himself. Some might say, well, what about those verses you just read a moment ago in John chapter 5 that said those who did the good deeds had a resurrection to life, and those who did not do the good deeds had a resurrection to judgment. Don't those verses teach that our eternal life is based on our deeds? And the answer to the question is, no, those verses do not teach that. The Bible is clear that there's none who does good, not even one. Yet at the same time, the Bible says, for those who have been recreated in Christ, first, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, says that we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto what? Good works that God has beforehand ordained that we should walk in them. So who is it in John 5 that performs the good deeds and they are resurrected to life? It is the believer who has been created in Christ Jesus, according to Ephesians 2.10, to do good works. And there are other verses that folks twist in order to indicate that they are to be saved by their works. But again, they're twisting the Scripture. The Bible is explicitly clear. The life is in the Son. Right? Anyone else? Is the life in anyone else? No. Is the life in anything else? No. The life is in the Son. Does anyone else have the son? Does anyone else have the life? Anyone 
that is not in Christ does not have the life. It's that simple. It's that simple. The life, by the way, is not in the Son and in the works. No, you don't get the two. It doesn't say that. Life is in the Son of God. Not in the Son and in the works. Not in the Son and in the church and so on and so forth. The life is in the Son. And if you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son of God, you don't have the life. That's John's explicit statement. That's God's explicit statement here. Now look at verse 13. 1 John 5.13 These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. How do you know if you have the Son? Well, the answer is in verse 13. You believe in Him. You've put faith, your faith, that gift that God has given you into Jesus Christ. Whoever has believed in Christ has the life. And notice the rest of that verse. You may know that you have eternal life. It's not a guessing game. We can be confident. Now, if you can look at your life and you know and have sound biblical doctrine and you see that your doctrine, the things that you believe, line up with the biblical doctrines concerning Christ, then you can be resting assured that, that you had the right doctrine. And if your life lines up with that doctrine, you're performing deeds consistent with that sound doctrine, then you can be confident that you have eternal life. But, if your doctrine doesn't line up with the doctrine of Scripture, and I would go so far as to say that if you believe there is salvation in addition to Christ, in someone or something else, that's unsound doctrine. And you cannot confidently say that you have eternal life. Your doctrine is explicitly unsound and contrary to one of the most basic principles of salvation, and that is the life is in the Son. So these folks that want to say that they're Christians but can lose their salvation, and if you can lose your salvation, then it's maintained by you. It's salvation by works in some form or fashion. That's unsound doctrine. They cannot justifiably claim that they have eternal life at all. But for those who believe that Jesus Christ and Christ alone is the Savior and Christ Himself is the Savior, and they believe in Him, they have eternal life. As Jesus said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Well, what does it mean to eat Christ's flesh and drink His blood? It's a valid question. There was a question, perhaps, they, in the day that they were listening to the Lord Himself, 
had some difficulty with. If you go back to John chapter 6, look there with me. You notice it was right after that. Let's go back to our text. We ended with verse 55, but I'll ask you to move down to verse 56. Jesus said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now notice verse 59. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? But you can see there that as they heard this, they were kind of perplexed about it. You know, it is interesting that as Jesus was teaching, he was teaching in the synagogue, wasn't he? So there were Jews that were there. And, and really what Jesus is doing is he's using Old Testament terminology in a sense here. And you'll see that in just a moment. But first of all, I want to point out, we're not going to go and look at them all. They uh, say, in essence, very similar, the same thing. But the Bible, very specifically in the Old Testament, condemned the drinking of blood. It condemned the eating of flesh that still had the blood in it. It did that in Genesis chapter 9, verse 4. And in Leviticus chapter 3, verse 17. And chapter 7, verse 26. And 17 of Leviticus, verses 10 through 14. All of these verses and several others in Deuteronomy condemn the drinking of blood. Go with me for a moment to Leviticus chapter 17. In Leviticus 17, move down in the text to verse 10. And any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. In other words, the life is in the blood. And whenever the blood is poured out on the altar, it's representative of life lost. In this case, life sacrificed. The blood of the animal on the altar spoke to the death of the animal. Its blood was poured out. So whenever Jesus is talking about, for instance, in the New Testament, and he says, take this cup, it is his blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many, he's talking about his life 
because life is in the blood, being given for many. But why would Jesus say, eat my flesh and drink my blood? Why would he do that? Well, eating the flesh of Christ and drinking his blood speaks to a sharing in the body and the blood of Christ. Not specifically talking here about the Lord's Supper, but about sharing in Christ Himself. Indeed, God instituted the Lord's Supper, and we know that from the New Testament. We saw it in Matthew 26, Mark chapter 14, Luke 22. And there Jesus took the bread and likened the bread to His body, and the wine He likened to His blood. And very specifically, He said, as a matter of fact, turn with me in Matthew 26 to verse 26. Move down to the Last Supper as Jesus is instituting it here in verse 26. When they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, He broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So He took the bread and He identified the bread as His body. Now I know there's a lot of consternation that comes with these statements. Some believe in transubstantiation, Roman Catholicism, for example. And basically, they believe that the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper, the communion, when it's served, and once it is ingested into the body, becomes the literal blood and body of Jesus Christ. What a man-made doctrine. For one, it counters all those verses in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that warn against the drinking of blood. It's, it's pagan at its root. It's pagan at its root. It's a re-crucifixion of Jesus Christ who died one for all. One time for all. Then there is consubstantiation. That's held by several who are in Lutheran uh, religion. And they believe basically that in some kind of different way, the presence of the Lord is with, over, above those elements. I'll remind you of something. Jesus said it this way. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is no more with you when you are partaking of the Lord's Supper than He is with you when you are in church on a regular Sunday or at home or at work. He is always with His people. And He's always all there with them. You don't get more of Him at certain times. He's always with us. I am with you always. And Hebrews 13, He has promised us that He will never leave us nor forsake us, right? 
What Christ is simply doing is saying, this bread is representative of my body. Take a look at it as he goes on. For this is, and then he said of the blood or the wine, and when he had uh, taken a cup and had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Many have argued. He said, the blood is His blood. Or the wine is His blood. The cup is His blood. They argue and say, the Bible says, and Jesus said, the bread is His body. Well, Jesus said, I am the door. Jesus said, I am the light. We don't take those literally. And that's the same verb sense, in essence, that is here. He's telling us and He's communicating to us that these elements are representative of Him. Now, I want you to go with me for a moment over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And as you move down in 1 Corinthians 10, move down to verse 14. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says here, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break, a sharing in the body of Christ. So Paul is clearly referring to the Lord's Supper here. And notice what he says. The sharing, whenever we take the cup, we're sharing in the blood of Christ. Whenever we eat the bread, we're sharing in the body of Christ. And again, this wouldn't be literal in the sense of it turning into blood, or turning into his body. God condemned that clearly in the Old Testament. What Paul is saying is that we're sharing in, in the participation in the Lord's Supper, we are giving a demonstration that we are sharing in Christ's death. We are identifying ourselves with his body and His blood that was given on our behalf. And furthermore, by consuming it, we are talking about the intimate level of that sharing experience. That we are proclaiming our identification with Him. Now look as the text goes on. Notice this closely. Verse 17 says, Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Look at the nation Israel. So now he's looking at the Old Testament. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? 
Whenever you go back into the Old Testament, you will see, and I'll ask you to turn with me to Leviticus again. Go to Leviticus chapter 6. You'll see that some of the offerings, parts of those offerings, the priests and the families of the priests were allowed to consume. They were allowed to eat some of them. For instance, in Leviticus 6, move down to verse 14. Now this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall present it before the Lord in front of the altar. Then one of them shall lift up from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering with its oil and all the incense that is on the grain offering and he shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, a soothing aroma as its memorial offering to the Lord. What is left of it, and his sons, Aaron and his sons, are to eat. It shall be eaten as unleavened cakes in a holy place. They are to eat it in the court of the tent of meeting. Move down in the same chapter to verse 24. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is slain, the sin offering shall be slain before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. It shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tent of meeting. Anyone who touches its flesh will become consecrated, and when any of its blood splashes on a garment in a holy place, you shall wash what was splashed on. Verse 29, Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. Move over to chapter 6. That's the grain offering. That's the sin offering. And then whenever you move into chapter 7, move down to Verse 6, and we're talking here about the guilt offering. Verse 6 says, Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The point is, is that the priests in the Old Testament participated in, identified with that offering that they gave by consuming it. It was for them. It was for the people of Israel. And God was demonstrating in that offering the fact it was for them and He identified them with it. Whenever we come to the New Testament and we partake in our Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord's death until He comes. And that doesn't just mean that we're proclaiming that the Lord died until He comes, but we are proclaiming all that is involved in His death. And an aspect of His death is that it was a vicarious death. It was on behalf of someone. Who was it on behalf of? It was on behalf of those that God had chosen from before the foundation of the world. It was on behalf of those that God, according to Romans 8, loved in Jesus Christ. He gave His life for them. 
whenever Jesus spoke of eating of His flesh and drinking of His blood, He was ultimately referring to the identification of God's people with Jesus Christ. Those who share in His death, and they will also share in His resurrection. Whenever you go to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, the Apostle Paul makes this incredible statement. I'm just going to give you the first phrase of it. I am crucified with Christ. He went on to say, Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and gave Himself up for me. What was Paul saying? I am crucified with Christ. He was identifying and declaring the fact that in the death of Christ, He died. Paul didn't die for himself when he was saying he was crucified with Christ. He was talking about the fact that God had identified Paul in and with Christ and that, as Paul proclaimed there from eternity past, as he proclaimed basically back over in Romans chapter 9, those that he foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. All of that being those, Romans 8 actually, that are identified with Christ. So whenever Jesus talks about eating His flesh and drinking His blood, back over in John chapter 6, He's talking about those who have identified with Him. The Father has identified them with Him, and whenever they believe in Him, they are, in essence, acknowledging that God has identified them with Him them with Christ, and that life is in Him, and they are partaking of that. God does a similar thing with the word baptism. You can look at that up in Romans chapter 6. There, the word baptism is used in reference to identification. Being identified with Christ in His death, and being identified with Christ in His resurrection. Those who were there and listening to Christ should have known that. They should have been familiar. Just like Nicodemus should have been familiar in John chapter 3 with the new birth. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, Are you a teacher in Israel and you don't know these things? Jesus was alluding to the fact that the Old Testament spoke of the new birth. And indeed it did in the book of Ezekiel and other places, but specifically in Ezekiel. And here, they should have known what was going on. They should have recognized, wow, there is an identification that is in view here. Later, Peter would say that you, Christ, you have the words of eternal life. They knew it. They got it. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your grace and mercy. Thank You for its abundance. Thank You for Your presence and for the leadership of Your Spirit. 
Thank you for these words of Christ, and we pray that you would bless us with understanding of them in Jesus' name. Amen.